this, a topic of generations. I've talked about parenting and kids before and you know, being a youth pastor for a number of years. I've talked about developmental things of teens uh, who are no longer teens now uh, when I was youth pastoring. Um, but this issue of generations w- struck me as very interesting. Um, and so I'm looking forward to it. In fact, I was thinking about generations. You know, we're launching our small groups tonight. And I was thinking about what is the, I wonder what the dynamic really is like for somebody when they think about joining a small group that might have different generations across it and how that might be when they get into it. And then I started looking at our small groups and I thought, you know, some of them, they function just that way. Uh, that There are, are a number of generations within that, two or three generations, and it, and it seems to f- seems to function pretty well. So I, I thought I, before we actually jumped into it, if you're a small group leader or you are one of the uh, facilitators, your host home, do you, do you mind standing up right now that we might recognize you before we get going? Yeah. So, so I know there are a lot with the kids and stuff, but if you're in here, yeah, can we give them a hand for, yeah, they're launching into it tonight and, and we really appreciate what, what, you're, what you're doing. So, uh, so get yourself signed up if you're not otherwise. Well, we're going to look at this topic. You see, when I grew up, um, I thought very early in my life, as you probably did, I thought about what I wanted to do in life, the profession that I wanted to get into. Did you think about that as well when you were growing up? So <laughs> some of you are like, well, I'm still thinking about it. Oh. Yeah, I thought about it. I wanted to be a lawyer from very young, uh, early age. Well, I wanted to be a professional baseball player, you know, <laughs> but everyone on my team was here, and I was always here, so I understood that may not happen, but I wanted to be a lawyer, and so I would get intrigued by law type of stuff. In fact, early on, you know, Law and Order had been my favorite TV show since it started. I mean, just so intrigued by that whole thing, uh, so I wanted to be a lawyer. Now, as I got older in high school, and I started to realize professional athletes may not be, or athletics may not be in my future, I thought, well, I should go into sports law then. And I thought, well, that'd be the coolest thing, wouldn't it be, that I could actually be a lawyer that worked with athletes and drew up the contracts. And then when I heard the percentage that the agents made on drawing up the contracts, I really wanted to go into sports law as well. And that was the kind of where I was projecting. In fact, that was all the way up to almost 18 years old. So I was still 17, but almost 18th birthday, I was projecting sports law and being a lawyer. I was sitting in school one day, and it was my end of my 11th grade year, and as I was sitting there, I just entertained the thought. I had become a Christian about a year prior, and I just entertained the thought in my head, Tom, you ought to go into the ministry. <laughs> and I said, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> and that was it. That was my miraculous calling into the ministry <laughs> right there. You know, there was no like heavenly beings or lights that shine down. You know, the, the teacher didn't like stop what she was saying or anything like that and go, wow, Tom, there's a glow about you. There was nothing like that that happened. It was just a quick thought. Um, And then from that point on, I tracked towards being uh, a full-time minister and being a pastor. Um, I think it's pretty common for all of us that when we grow up, the number one question that we ask ourselves or is asked of us by other people, including our parents, is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with life? In fact, when you're in kindergarten, this question starts. What are you going to do? All the way back to kindergarten. In fact, I remember when Sierra was in kindergarten, I remember coming to the school and I saw on the walls of the kindergarten, which was right here at the school, I saw on the walls the future professions that they would like to be. Uh, What do you want to do 
What do you want to become in the sense of occupation? We start answering that question as early as kindergarten, and we start developing it and changing answers and getting into different things all the way up to about mid-high school. And then it gets into a little panic fill because you're going to be done with high school, and you're really asking, now, what are you, what are you going to do? So what comes next after high school? And you have to think, am I going to be college student? Am I going to be, you know, occupation person? Um, nowadays, with the cost of college, you're both those things at the same time. Uh, but we start thinking, what am I going to do? And then, let's say we get into college, or you get into some internship or something like that, and after a few years of college or a couple years of an internship, you start to really ask, okay, now, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? What is my full-blown occupation going to be? And so we're answering this question from about five years old all the way up to about 22 years old, and you would think once you get into that profession that you think, now I'm here, I'm done answering that question. But I'm 41 years old, and the, the question never is stopped being answered. We keep asking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do with life? Well, this morning, we're going to talk about, when we talk about generations, this question of what are we going to do versus another question. And the question is really, what am I going to be? Or who am I going to be? You see, sometimes we don't necessarily directly ask the question, starting from from kindergarten, of somebody, who are you going to be? What are you going to stand for? What's your character going to look like? You know, what's your spirituality going to look like? What's your Christianity going to be modeled after? And we forget to ask this question. Now, it's not that we don't teach this type of thing. We teach it in principles. We catch our kid lying, and guess what we do? I mean, we give him a little smack, or we give him a talking to, or whatever you do as a parent. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, whatever you do. <laughs> so, as a parent, so we're teaching them into the, some of these character things. But we forget sometimes to ask specifically the question, what are you going to be? Or who are you going to be? What are you going to be about in life? You see, I could have been a sports lawyer, right? And I could have been about the same thing that I am as a minister. I could have been about putting Jesus Christ first in my life. I could have been about sharing him with other people that I came in contact with. And I could have done it as a sports lawyer for the last 20, 25 years or so, right? Or I could have not been about Jesus Christ at all as a sports lawyer. And guess what? Sometimes even pastors get off track and they forget to keep Jesus Christ as a central thing in their occupation. Who are you going to be? And that's a question we're going to look at. So I talked about generations. And let's look at these, these generations. Like I said, there's six living generations. Now the, the oldest generation is about 95 and older. So we're going to look at the five generations that we interact with on a pretty regular basis, okay? These pretty regular basis. First is this silent generation. 1920 to about 1945 are the years that was called the silent generation. You see, these kids, when they were born, they grew up with parents who had come through a very, very difficult time in our, our nation's history. This, this Great Depression that they, they were part of early on as, as infants in their lives, and they grew up with this type of influence in their life. And so even though in their life, at a very early age, they would have started to get into times of prosperity, they grew up with this influence of, you need to really watch what you have. You need to be careful what you do with what you have. And you need to keep an eye on what you have as well, lest somebody else decides to come along and take what you have. And so they grew up with this mentality. Very low risk 
during this, this, this uh, generation, you know, to launch out, to invest, and to, to, to risk what they have was at a low compared to other generations. And so they call that the silent generation, meaning not silent in the sense that they don't say anything. You know, this has nothing to do with silent films, you know, back in the day. This has to do with don't make a lot of waves. Don't push against a lot of things. Now, you need to know right offhand that every single one of these generations was in some way pushing against the previous generation, even the silent generation. So when you look at, you know, your, your very loving, sweet, you know, great-grandma, guess what? Her generation was still pushing against something previous. Every generation does here. But this generation here was a little bit more defined by not taking risk, hanging on to, being very careful about what you do with what you have. Well, the world wars came and went, and once the, the men came home from the wars, well, this great baby boom started. You might know of this. Now, very glad to see each other, I guess. And this baby boom started somewhere around 1946, and so babies going everywhere, and there was this time in our, our culture, in, the, in U.S. history, where there was this huge boom in population, and there was this joy, seemingly, uh, in, in the nation as well during this time. And this goes to about 1964. Now, what's interesting about this generation is this generation kind of did the flip-flop of the previous generation. The previous generation keeping an eye on what we have and being very careful, frugal with what we have, and also being on guard that no one else might take what you have. This generation kind of flipped it around, and it became a lot more materialistic in the sense. Now, when you think materialistic, not necessarily 80s-style materialistic. We'll talk about that in, the middle, in a minute. But there started to become an understanding that you, you need to move out to the suburbs. You need to get a house. You know, you need to have a nice fence and a, and a dog and a couple kids. And, and so there was this growth that started to happen. And much of this growth during the baby boom time had to do with kids being born and with your house now was a time where just about everybody could afford a car and have a car in, in their family. And so you could see this boom was occurring. Interesting thing that also happened uh, in, in the 50s or as this generation was, was somewhere, you know, they're starting to become teenagers and stuff, is there was a, a new trend was, was created. It was the trend of the garage. Did you know this? And when the garage came into being, people drove in their driveway, they drove in their garage, they went inside their house, and the connection in the front yard that had been part of uh, American culture, front yard, front porches, things like that, it started to shift a little bit. Now, this shift took a couple decades to actually fully take effect. We know now it's pretty much how we function in life, but this is a time where the, the seed was planted, and it started here. Community started to change a little bit. It started to turn a little bit more inward for a family instead of neighborhood-wise. And so the focus started to shift in the boomer generation to what I have and what I have I like and accumulating a little bit more of what you have. Now, uh, after the the baby boomers, uh, the Generation X, which you hear of often, came on the scene. In fact, you might think when you go, wow, Generation X, I didn't realize it's that old at 1965, which means many of us in the room, we are part of Generation X, right? I mean, that's that's where I come from when I think uh, of these things that define Generation X. And Generation X, they started to say, now hmm, I'm not totally sure the way my parents and grandparents did things is the way that 
that we should continue to do things. It's kind of like those of you who have teenagers as kids, you recognize that when they were eight or nine, dads, they thought you knew everything. And everything you said was like, man, you tell them to throw the ball this way, and they're like, I'm throwing the ball this way. You know, everything you said was right on. And then somewhere around 13, 14, 15 years old, all of a sudden they discover mom and dad don't know everything, or they're actually wrong about some things. Um, And it's confusing sometimes for a teenager. Sometimes they shift all the way to the other side where they say mom and dad know nothing now. I can trust no information out of their mouth. Um, That's kind of what Generation X was all about. You see, they started to think and they started to look at the previous generations and they started to go, you know, I'm not quite sure they, they did everything right like we might have thought before. And they started to experiment and started to think about new ways to do things and new ways to, to focus on life and this type of thing. Interesting enough, as much criticism sometimes as you hear of Generation X and the way they kind of taken things... Um, Generation X actually tends to be the generation of these on the board that cares about themselves the least of these generations. Now, with that said, all of these generations are narcissistic, okay? All of them, to some degree, are defined by personal desire and personal want, um, but it's how, what they did with it. Uh, generation X, not as strong in that. So you can see how starting in 65 at, at, at uh, a very early age, I mean, they're influenced by some of the stuff that's going on in the 60s, and it started to define who they were as they started to grow and become adults, and they started to question certain things. I need to question maybe how, how our governments run. Is that, is that exactly how I want to see it run? Is that proper? Is it, the cor- is it the correct ideology? They started to even ask the question about church, and how church functions, and, and do, I, do I need to keep going to church and being a part of this? You can look at it this way. This, this feeling of, of somewhat doubt, or is there another way to do stuff, Generation X planted this in, in, into our culture that we know today. It was started by this generation. In this generation, you might hear people do this. People might say, well, on one side, you know, da-da-da-da, and then, but then on the other side, you know, this and this and this. And at the end of the conversation, they never have really landed on either side, <laughs> but, they, but they shared with you some very interesting stuff, kind of a definition of that generation. I find myself doing that quite regularly as well. Well, the millennials come on the scene about 1982, and really usher in the new generation. And right now, there is no bigger group of people that have dropped out of the church world entirely than the millennials. In fact, if you would like, go right down to some of your Christian bookstores or look online about church millennials, and you will see all the resources for pastors and church leaders about how to reconnect with a millennial generation. Why? You see, the seed that was planted in Generation X The millennials took that and they perfected it, (laughs) perfected it. So when this question of, I wonder if my parents and grandparents are doing things the right way, I wonder if there's another way to do things, millennials take that and they just blow it up entirely, and not only do do they, they push forward in it, but they quit asking the question that involves parents and grandparents entirely, and they just start to ask the question based on me. What do I think's right? How does it feel for me? Does this work for me? Does this all come together well for me? And this has been a defining characteristic of of the millennial culture. And so for a millennial, you will see they will more sit back, watch, and then decide, no, that's not for me. I would do it this way and launch into it. Now, you might say, well, that 
kind of all generations do that to, to some level, some degree, but this defines the millennial generation uh, as well. Now, ushering in this new age, this, uh, this AO generation, or you might have heard uh, Generation Z uh, here, is basically the always-on generation. And when you think always-on, it's exactly what you think. This is a group that has never not known being connected to the internet. From birth till now, they know World Wide Web. In fact, they don't ever even use that phrase, World Wide Web. I mean, that's for us old people when we say, I can get on the World Wide Web. They don't even talk that way. They're always online. It's always there. It's like a fish in water doesn't recognize water. That's how they are. And so their lives function very differently. The day of the instantaneous, either gratification or instantaneous knowledge, that defines the AO generation. You know, for me even, I can remember the days where there was no computer in the home whatsoever. In fact, when we started to have a computer in the home, the computer was in a centralized location for the whole family, like the living room, right? That day has changed entirely. An AO person would not only grow up with no concept of just a family computer, but they don't even talk in terms anymore of computer, all right? They just talk in terms of being online or being connected, and it doesn't matter what device you might use, and this defines them because they've grown up this way. In many respects, they speak to more people than we have done in other generations, maybe in the most of our life combined, but sometimes they have less relationships than we had in previous generations. It's a very interesting dynamic. Researchers actually say that despite what you might think sometimes about this current generation that's really only about 14 or 15 years old now, but whatever you might think about them, researchers actually say they find great, great hope in this AO generation for our nation because they tend to be very compassionate about issues outside of themselves. So even though you're like, man, really? Because my kid only wants to play on his game all the time for his self, they tend to still be moved when it's presented to them on things that are connected on a world level even. And so there's great hope for them. Now they're so young, who knows? Who knows which way they go? We're going to talk about that uh, a little bit as we keep going. You can look about like this. I brought my Frisbee with me today. Um, and I was thinking about this in these generations. If you were playing Frisbee with five different people of this generation, and I was from the silent generation, and you said, hey, let's throw the Frisbee, I would say, well, well I, I probably, I'd like to just hang on to it and just, just be sure that I have my Frisbee. So uh, I'm just going to hang on. A boomer might say, this is my Frisbee. Why would I throw it to you? Why would I throw it to somebody else? This is, this is my Frisbee. A Generation X person might look at the Frisbee and say, well, you know, I know, that, I know how the game is played. I've watched it a few times, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure if, if throwing it from one person to another is the best way to play Frisbee. Um, so I'm going to kind of think about how we might do Frisbee differently. All right? So a millennial would, would basically, uh, basically just get caught up in, do I feel like I want to play Frisbee today? Um, do I think maybe throwing frisbee would make me happy? Um, and and despite how they'd answer that question, they might throw the frisbee or not. And then an AO generation would say, frisbee, excellent. Let's play some frisbee. I've got it on my Wii. <laughs> let's, go, let's go play. And seemingly all of these generations, they may actually not ever actually, you know, fling that frisbee and throw it. That was for you, Steve. So, and play frisbee, all right? 
that's kind of how they look at it. But I want to look at a couple more things before we move on from these generations. I want to talk about a verse that's in the Bible, because when we start to think about generational differences, guess what we do? We will interpret God and how God works into our way are in our world based on some of our generational preferences. Take a look at this verse. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Now, I've been using this verse, and I've been walking the board through the verse, the staff through the verse, the small group leaders through this verse, and some of the people that we disciple. And I thought, well, this is a perfect verse to look at when we think about generations. It says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul's the writer of this letter. Uh, to the church at Philippi, and here's what he says. Therefore, my loved ones, just as you've always obeyed me, not just when I'm present, but now even more while I'm away, carry out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, the reason we've been walking through this verse is this is a verse that's it's a little complex when you try to think of what in the world does this verse mean, you know, to continue your salvation with fear and trembling. What is this, all this kind of stuff? And so when we go at a verse like this and we want to interpret it and figure out what really does it mean, if I look at this verse, depending on our generation, you might interpret this verse a, a little bit different. If you're from maybe a boomer generation or, or even before, you might look at this verse and you might hone in on, on this word up here that says carry out or some of your translations say work out your salvation. And you might say, that's right, work out your salvation. It takes work. You, you, gotta, you gotta work hard to accomplish things in life. Nothing's ever given to you, so you gotta work, work, work to make these things happen. And so you might interpret it based on on that word work or carry out, and you might focus there. That's going to take some effort, some energy, some discipline on your part. Whereas you look over at somebody, maybe a millennial, and they'll look at this passage and go, wow, um, always, just as you always obey me, not just when I'm president, okay, work out, carry out. Um, They would say, yeah, I've got to really think about what that means to me and how I would carry out my salvation. You know, and they might leave out fear and trembling and not get that far. But they would focus on those, those words like I and my and how would I carry out my thing. Because if I focus on those words, guess what? However I carry it out, that's okay. That's right with me. I'm doing it. I'm following the verse. But they would focus heavily on the I and the my and what I'm doing in those So you can see how when we take scripture sometimes even, we might interpret it and our influence of our generation comes into play. I was thinking about church attendance as well. You see, if you're in the silent generation, guess what? You grew up, for the most part, going to church. In fact, you're probably still going to church. A heavy, heavy majority of those are still going to church, and they're, they're, they're ones that fill up many of our churches uh, in America. Baby boomers, they are, still go to church quite, quite a bit, but you can see that percentage start to drop uh, drop pretty good amount. In fact, if you're uh, in my generation, Generation X, think about your parents and ask the question, do my parents still go to church? And probably you would look down the line and they're not nearly as strong as those before it. Why? Well, they, they got really caught up in you know, building a family, growing a family, doing a job, doing a career, having a house, these type of things. And sometimes down the line, you kind of lose track of getting to church. It becomes a secondary thing, and it becomes a lifestyle that way uh, as well. When you, when you flip down the list and you get to Generation X, well, we start to say, well, that was kind of a parent thing, and if I attach myself to something that might be kind of meaningful to me, um, then, then I'll probably plug in, I'll go, but they see it a little bit more as a parent thing. 
That's the seed that was planted. Millennials take it all the way and perfect this thing, and they basically say, hey, if it fits me, if it's good for me, if I enjoy it, if it entertains me, you know, I'm a little bit more consumer-driven by my church attendance, then I'll go. Millennials, if they get ticked off by anything at church, (laughs) you challenge them, they don't quite like it, they're out, they're gone, because that kind of defines that when we focus on, on me more than that. AO generation, do they go to church? Well, that depends. How well do their Gen X parents go to church uh, now? And so you can see all of this stuff is affected uh, by these things as well. And so as we move on and we talk about this this morning, I want you to think about a, a phrase that is really important. The phrase is this, what you possess, you project. Important phrase, what you possess, you project. Meaning that whatever is significant to you, whatever you spend your time accumulating or pulling around yourself, whatever, whatever it is that you find yourself spending the most amount of your money, your energy, and your focus, that is also what you're going to project to other people. So for me, quite simply, if, if, uh, uh, if you look at me and I care greatly about my Atlanta Braves and about baseball, that I can't not find a way to project that at times. And so you probably, not spending too much time around me, would know, wow, he's into baseball. You know, and I think he's a Braves fan too because that's something I'm going to project on to, to somebody else, right? Now think about like the, the teenage boy when they start to like a teenage girl. Somehow that girl's name slips into conversations you know, at different times. And finally, you know, you're like, uh, do you like this girl? No, no, we're just friends. We're just friends. But somehow she's finding her way into conversations. Why? You know, he's projecting that because he has a desire or a like for this girl. We possess what we, whatever we possess, we project as well. Now, think about it on a much, much more serious level, that when we possess, when we try hard to possess and accumulate our stuff, and we work so hard, spend our time, our energy to make sure that we have, you know, a nice car, a nice house, everything looks just right, those type of things. Um, we got to upgrade to the next version of whatever just came out. You know, back, you know, when, when I was a kid and, and for those of you older in, in our generations, the updated version of things, you know, that took so long for that to happen, right? Right? And we didn't even know what 2.0 meant uh, back in the day. But now, you know, it flips. Every few months, there's some new version of something. So if we spend our time, our energy to try to possess those type of things, what is it we're going to project as well? Now let me ask this question as well. Parents, for a second, ask yourself, what do you spend your time, your energy, your focus on? That's what you're going to project. And guess who you're going to project it on the most? Your kids, because they live with you, whether you like it or not. They live there all the time. <laughs> and so they see what, what it is you project. Take a look at what Paul says, just a, a one chapter over in Philippians. Chapter 3, here's what he says. These things were my assets, but I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. But even beyond that, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the superior value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. I have lost everything for him, but what I lost I think of as sewer trash so that I might gain Christ. You know what Paul is saying here, and if you read back further, you'll know that he's talking about what he did. 
he became a Pharisee. He became a perfecter of the law. He knew the law as well as anyone else. He was talking about his occupation that he previously was, that as a Pharisee, he was put in charge of going out and actually enforcing the law that these Christians would not be out preaching about Jesus Christ. And so he was very good at this as well. So he's talking about his occupation. When he says assets, he's talking about this is what I possessed. This is what I spent my time and energy towards. And see, I consider that all a loss. Why? Because of who Jesus Christ is. Because of what Jesus Christ has brought to my life. Listen, some of the defining characteristics of this, these generations, right? Some of the narcissistic things, some of the selfish things of these generations, all right? And they're not all bad, the generational things. But some of the things that defined it on the negative, I just, as looking at it and studying it and hearing Paul's word, believe this, that it's very, very difficult to have those characteristics and be an everyday follower of Jesus Christ. It's very, very difficult. If you find yourself in that position, you know, in there, it's very difficult to be an everyday follower of Jesus Christ. Because as Paul's writing here, what he's saying is what I possess, what I spend my time, my energy, my effort to, what my eyes are focused on for vast amount of time, that will be what I project as well. And so I want to project Christ. So I'm going to consider all of that as loss. Paul grew up from a little boy, a young Jewish boy, learning about the law. Now, a Pharisee, they would have had the law memorized as well as the entire Old Testament. You know, the entire Old Testament, you know, that's most of your Bible here. They would have had it memorized. There's a lot of stuff to have pride in for Paul. And what he's saying here is, look, I count it all loss. Everything I was from my occupation, how good I was at it, I consider it lost. Why? Because I didn't know Jesus Christ. And I didn't project Jesus Christ. And if I'm ever going to project Christ, I've got to surrender those things and get my eyes and my focus on Christ alone. Parents, when we think about this, here's the question to ask yourself. Parents, what do you project? What are you projecting in your life? Because whatever you're projecting, your kids are picking up on it and they're receiving it. There's this great studies done by a guy named um, Daryl Little, and it was through the Barna Group. And Barna is, if you're not familiar with it, kind of the guru of Christian uh, surveying. So they're out doing all these surveys all the time. And Daryl Little did this, this survey through the Barna Group, a research through the Barna Group and their surveys, and he came to the conclusion that for the most part, your kids will do what you do 100% of the time. So if you do something 100% of the time, pretty good chance your kids will do it 100% of the time or it will be significant in their life. If every morning you wake up and that trash goes out at 7 o'clock to the curb or to the trash can, it just becomes a discipline in your life, pretty good chance your kid, without even knowing it, will make sure his trash is out every night when he's 35 years old, right? All right. Well, come to think of it, my parents did always take out the trash, and I'm not too good at it. So maybe I'm talking against my point. So but that's why I have kids, right? So, you know, hey, go take out the trash. All right, I digress. But the study basically is talking about the, what we do 100% of the time, our kids will probably do 100% of the time. But what you do 75% of the time, at best your kids will do it about 50% percent of the time. And what you do 50% of the time, your kids will probably do about 20% of the time, and you can keep doing the math all the way down. What it's saying is, look, parents, if it's of tremendous value to you, do it all the time. Do it. 
plug in. Let your kids see it. Let that discipline be built into your kids so that they will then do it all the time. But see, because if you do it 50% of the time, the, what we're really communicating to our kids is, it's kind of a take it or leave it. Yeah, I, I may do it today. I may not do it tomorrow. I don't know. What's the criteria for figuring out which 50% we're going to be on? Remember, you might understand why, but you're dealing with millennials. You're dealing with, or, or kids that are always on generation. You're dealing with kids that have grown up with the dominant feeling of, if it feels right, I'll do it. If it doesn't quite feel right, I won't do it. And so they have a very hard time interpreting your 50% of the time. Very interesting study. Now flip it over to like church attendance. Flip it over to devotion life in your home. Parents, are you projecting that being in God's house is central to your family? Are you projecting that being in God's word daily is central to your family? Because chances are, if you're here 100%, or if you're in God's word 100% of your days, that your kids will be as well. A pretty good chance of that. But if you're just lingering in the 50% realm with your church attendance, 50% realm with your devotion life, chances are your kids won't even live up to the 50%. They'll interpret it totally different than you. What is it that you project, parents? We've been walking through some of these one-on-one discipleships. I told you early in the, in the, the summer that our goal was to one-on-one disciple 100 people of the church. We're cranking through six people right now. One-on-one discipleship going on with six people. Last time I reported you, I was going through with one. <laughs> there was one person. But now it's expanded to six people working through uh, this, this, curri- this curriculum and this discipleship program. And the very first lesson The very first lesson is basically asking the question, would you be qualified for Jesus to ask you to be one of his disciples back in the day? When Jesus came through, would you qualify for that? And we come to basically this conclusion. Take a look at this, these four things. This is what Jesus was after when he called disciples. Number one, he was after a hunger for God. His desire for somebody to say, you know, I desire God. I hunger after him. I want to be close to Jesus Christ. Second thing is, will you be available to Christ? Being available, look, I'll make myself available. I'll give my time. Remember, these disciples, they got out of their boat. They left. They did not return to their boats. They went on with Jesus. Would you make yourself available to Jesus? Well, I'm just too busy. You know, I would do it, but it's really hard to do three minutes in, in devotions in the morning. Just too busy. Do we make ourselves available? How about faithful would be the third one? When it gets a little bit tough, am I gonna stick in there and be faithful to Jesus Christ? The writings of David in the Psalms are even the, the laments where he's complaining to God. At the end, he often says, but I will yet praise your name, Lord. I'll stay faithful to you. That's very, very difficult for a millennial and even a Gen X generation to stay faithful when times are tough. It's very easy for a millennial generation to turn and just say, I don't know why God's doing this. It's not been working for me, so I'm out. But we stay faithful even when times are difficult. And finally, the word teachable. I think everybody thinks they're teachable, so don't ask yourself would be the question. <laughs> thing. Ask, ask somebody else. Because are you teachable? Can somebody come to you and say, hey, you know, you're not very good at that, or you were a little rough there, or it's time to put some more compassion in your life, or whatever it may be. Are you teachable to receive that? Because I, I can know one thing. When you get serious about Jesus Christ, he is going to start teaching. He's going to start teaching you because he desires to make you something different than you currently are. Here's a takeaway point this morning for you to think about. 
It's just simply this. Project Christ. Parents, project Jesus Christ. If you project Jesus Christ, there's a chance, and a strong, strong chance, that your kids will own it and they will project Jesus Christ in their own life. If you project half of Jesus or some of Jesus or part-time Jesus, your kids probably won't even make it to that point. Project Christ in your life. Most significant thing you as a parent can do. Listen, I know parents. I am a parent. There is this pressure to provide the right house, the right neighborhood, and the right school, and all those type of things. Beginning of the school year, I absolutely hate it because I feel like I need to go buy clothes. I was so glad when they went to a a school with uniforms because I was like, you're getting two uniforms, just flip them each day, okay? You'll be just fine. All right. (laughs) Hard to figure those things out as a parent. Parents, you can miss on the house, okay? You can miss on the right car. You can miss on getting the right clothes for your kids. Just face it, parents, we'll never keep up with trends. We're just clueless in that era. You can miss on all of that. Do not miss on projecting Jesus Christ to your kids because if you miss on that, there are eternal ramifications in the life of your kids. So, so significant to you. Well, let me pray for you this morning, and I would recognize that as I pray, some of you as parents, this is a heavy, heavy issue, and you've got a 14, 15, 16-year-old, and already you're like, I have no idea how to recover at this point with my kid and where to go from here. I want to pray for you specifically, and I want to tell you this week, if for you, you're a parent and you're just like, I got a teen or I got a kid that just moved out of the home, and I don't know how to recover from here, and you want to just spend a time... I would love to sit down and talk with you. Having been a youth pastor 16 years, um, I would love to process some of this with you and, uh, and where you go from here. Let me pray for you. Father, this morning I recognize that uh, um, there's some fun in a topic of generations and thinking about uh, what generations are like and even causing you know, a little bit of smile and laughter for us when we think about, oh yeah, that's me. But Father, there's some real, real significance in it as well. And at the core, the question would be, Lord, are we projecting who you are? And Lord, it's easy. We can sit back and I can, as a Gen Xer, Lord, I guess I could blame and I could say, hey, my generation just led me that way. It's just who I am. But your word has called me to something so different. Your word has called me to possess you as my Lord and Savior and then to project you onto, onto my kids or really anyone I come in contact with. And Lord, I know as a dad, the thing I feel like I fail the most in is being a good spiritual mentor. And Father, I would just guess to say this room is filled with other dads or other parents that feel the same thing. That we've struggled in how to project you, how to share with them who you are. Lord, I pray this morning that at very first, before we launch into reading any James Dobson books or any type of other stuff, Lord, that the first thing that we would do is we would quietly in this time of prayer, if you're a parent that's in the same boat as what I just said, that we would just pray a recommitment, that we would say, Lord, I recommit my life to you. I re-surrender who I am. I've gotten so off track. Would you fill me up once again with who you are? You can pray that kind of prayer right now and God will receive it right now. Why go out wondering and trying to figure it out? Just let Christ in again right now. And then, Lord, would you open up avenues even this week where you can start to shed some light on what to do and where we go from here? 
Lord, I, I believe this is significant, significant stuff for the life of our church with so many kids running around this church that we want to build into them as a church. But even more so, Lord, we want to build into parents who are able to build into their kids at home. So important, Lord. So guide us, help us. And when it's hard and when it doesn't make sense, may the word faithful ring true in our heads and may we stay faithfully committed to you. We pray it all in your son's name. Amen.